We're going to be in a couple of places this morning. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah. So if you've got a Bible or you want one, we've got these little tables in the back with Bibles. The way our Bibles work here is that if you need one, keep it. It's yours. If you know someone that needs one, give it away. Um, But we'll be in it every week, so if you want to leave it there, you're welcome to, but those are available for you to use. We'll be in the book of Isaiah, two places, first in chapter 6 and then back in chapter 1. So uh, just a little bit past Psalms, Proverbs, and so on and so forth, you'll find Isaiah in the Old um, Testament. So a few weeks, actually a few months ago now, when we were talking about our values and our approach to life, when we were preaching through the the worship-driven, community-minded, missionally-focused values that we have We talked a lot about worship, and I proposed a new definition, a new way of thinking about worship that I I was hoping would be a stretch for a lot of our boundaries. And I actually want to return to that definition today, because I think it really captures from a biblical perspective what worship really is. But before we get there, we have to understand this. When I'm talking about worship, I am not talking about worship in terms of time or place or style. So we're not talking about worship as an event as it happens at either 11, 9.30, or 5 on a Sunday evening. We're not talking about worship as a location, sanctuary, converted theater, park, whatever. We're not talking about worship as a style, contemporary, emergent, vintage, traditional, whatever catchword you want to use. We're actually not talking about that at all. Worship can't be contained or packaged into those phrases. So we've got to erase that from our mind. And that's why I was saying, take your paradigms of worship and set them aside. Because worship is actually something wholly different than that. Okay? And the definition that we're going to stick to this morning comes from a book by a guy by the name of Mark Laberton, who's a pastor in Berkeley, California. And one of the things that he wrote when he wrote a book on this subject was he redefined it in a way that I think captures the biblical picture of it. And he says this, That worship is the dangerous act of waking up to God and to the purposes of God in the world and living lives that actually show it. So those of you that are jotting this down, think about this. Worship is the dangerous act of waking up to God and to the purposes of God in the world and then living lives that actually show it. And we're going to spend some time this morning unpacking that definition because I feel like that it captures perfectly the essence of what I believe to be the biblical picture of worship. So we're just going to look at it piece by piece, that definition, as we kind of work it through uh, some of the things in the book of Isaiah. But he starts off by saying this, that that to begin with to understand worship, we have to understand worship as a, a waking up. The dangerous act of waking up to God. Now, hang on to that word dangerous. We're going to actually return to it a little later. But worship is the act of waking up to God. Laberton suggests that most churches, big C, across America, and most pastors, unfortunately, as well, have fallen asleep. They're not dead. They've just fallen asleep to worship. When it comes to worship, worship in our churches has become powerless and passionless, and in some cases, pointless because we've failed to recognize and remember that we're coming face to face with the holy magnificent creator god who's full of wonder and awe and is mighty and holy and he says that the church the first thing a church has to do when it comes to worship is wake up to the fact that each time we gather we are coming face to face with holy god It means that worship isn't about gathering in this place and wondering if Don's going to sing a song that you like. 
It means that worship is about waking up to the fact that we are coming face to face with Creator God. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 6. Now Isaiah chapter 6, the first part is really interesting because Isaiah is having this vision. He's actually kind of being commissioned or called by God. And he has this vision, this encounter with God where he sees God. And this is an account of this vision. Chapter 6, verse 1, Isaiah says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, which were like angelic beings, okay? Each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I love this vision that Isaiah has, because I believe it totally captures this almighty God, this picture of a God that is so much bigger than what we understand. Notice the first part of that. He says, um, there was a Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe was filling the temple. Now at the time, the temple was the grandest thing that man could build to house God. By God's instructions, man had built this temple where Israel worshipped, and it was by all kind of scales and imagination, the most grandest, amazing structure where people went to worship God and where the presence of God actually dwelled. There was nothing greater or bigger than the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And it says that in Isaiah's vision, he saw God seated on this throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. I mean, think about that imagery for just a minute. The the greatest thing that man could build to house and contain and to worship the Lord, just the very back part of the robe of God overflowed it. That God is so amazing and mighty and holy that the greatest things that we have to offer, the, the greatest things that we can imagine, don't even house the entire robe of God, but just that part that drags behind him. That the temple at the earth is almost like God's footstool. See, that imagery is really powerful because we've got to realize that when we show up here on a Sunday morning, we come to worship that God. That God that is magnificent and holy and mighty and that demands and deserves our respect and our praise. And that the greatest things that we have to offer can't contain God. That our minds can never fully wrap around that. And Laverton suggests the church has got to wake up to this reality that God is God. That God is in our buddy Jesus that we can keep in our pocket and bring out as our best friend and worship when we please. But that when we worship, we come face to face with Almighty God. We've got to wake up to that. I mean, it's amazing that our churches are filled with powerless and passionless worship when we realize that we've been invited into the presence of God. Into the very presence of God. See, worship begins with us waking up to that realization. It begins with us understanding that no matter what we define as style, time, or place, we're coming face to face with God. And that every moment... 
in God's presence is about awe and wonder. And Isaiah's picture for me is powerful and it it confronts me. Because oftentimes I worship a God that is so small. A God that I can control and that doesn't expect much or cost me much. We've got to worship it. We've got to understand that the God that we worship can't be contained by words on a screen. Or by a song that we like or by a hymn that we grew up with. And worship is not an emotion. But it's a coming face to face with a holy, creator, magnificent God. And I love that picture. So he says, worship is the dangerous act of waking up to God and to the purposes of God in the world. Which begs the question, what are God's purposes in the world and what do they really have to do with worship? And if we flip to Isaiah 1, there's really a really interesting picture of this. And, uh, and it's, it's kind of convicting to me. I mean, Isaiah is basically, he's confronting Israel. God is confronting Israel through Isaiah's words. But Isaiah is confronting Israel on the rebellious heart during worship. See, Israel was in the middle of their worship life, but their, their heart was all wrong. And so these words of Isaiah really are about the misdirected worship life of Israel. Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 12. God says this through Isaiah to Israel. He says, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers... I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. And plead the case of the widow. So what are God's purposes in the world in regard to worship? Well, listen to those last verses. Think about this for just a moment. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the impressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. And plead the case of the widow. This kind of turns your paradigms of worship upside down, doesn't it? I mean, notice what God is not saying. He's not saying that the action of Israel's worship is wrong. He's saying that their heart is Notice what God doesn't say. He doesn't say, you know, take your, your wicked, rebellious acts and go start a contemporary service because I like that music better. He doesn't say sing louder. He doesn't say go back to traditional worship, strike up the organ and sing the hymns that built this church. He says stop doing wrong. Learn to do right Seek justice, defend the fatherless or the orphan, and plead the case of the widow. Fight for the oppressed. 
I don't know about you, but that really turns my picture of worship on its head. Because for most of us, worship is about me. Not about me, Treb, but about yourself. We think that worship revolves around how I feel. We think that I should be engaged or have some kind of feeling when it comes to worship. In fact, when you leave here, somebody will probably call or ask or, or say to you, how was worship or how was church? And then you get the right to say, oh, it was okay or it was good or it was bad, as if it's something that you get to pass judgment on because of how you felt or how good the band sounded or how bad or awful the sermon actually was. The reality is that worship is not so much here as it is as how we live. And see, that changes everything for me. Because the church, on so many occasions, has made this thing our worship life. That worship is what happens here and here alone. But if we really read Scripture... If we really listen to the words of Psalm 146, which I read to you before we started, we'd recognize that worship and the purpose of God and the world go hand in hand. That how we live for the Lord outside of this place is as much worship as the singing that we do in here. And notice what it says. It doesn't say that worship is about being nice to people and not cussing and not doing bad things. Notice what it says, the cause and the purpose of God is in the world. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Fight for the oppressed. Defend the cause of the orphan and the widow. That means that when we leave this place and we go to places like Africa, Guatemala, China, Bosnia, wherever it is we're going, to fight for and take the gospel to those that are oppressed, that those are forgotten, the orphan, the widow. Then when we go down to Good Home Park, and on Wednesdays we spend time doing Bible study with our homeless friends. When we set up our porta potty out there, we call everybody into worship with us and we feed the hungry. When we go on Sunday nights, every Sunday night, and we serve at the city rescue mission as a way of an expression of our worship. Is the purpose of God in the world. And it is as much worship as what we do here. So worship is the act, the dangerous act, which we'll come back to, of waking up to God and to God's purposes in the world. And living lives that actually show it. Now, if you've heard me say anything, you've been around here at any point in time, you've heard me talk about that last part, living lives that actually show it. And I won't spend much time, but the idea is 1 John 2, 6. Whoever claims to live in him, Jesus, whoever claims to live in Jesus, must walk as he did. Living lives that actually show our waking up to God and our living for his purposes when it comes to worship are people that put their feet in the footsteps of Jesus, that loved the people that he loved, that cared for the people that he cared for, that walked the places that he walked, that lived in such a radical countercultural way that it turned the paradigms of the religious elite on its head. It's one thing to hear these things and say, you know what, that's, that's right, that's good. And it's another thing to say, I'm going to live this way. So we can't get away from this without talking about that word dangerous. Because I believe that word is really important. Worship is the dangerous act 
of waking up to God and to God's purposes in the world. So what makes worship dangerous? Well, I think a couple of things. One is that God is not safe. Nowhere in Scripture do we see a picture of a God who is safe. Nowhere in Scripture do we see God say that following me will be easy. In fact, we see the opposite. People that put their feet in the places of the Lord, that walked the paths of God, came across all kinds of trouble and hardship. God is not safe. I mean, we know that. If you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, you remember that little section where, where Peter and Lucy are talking to uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're talking about Aslan, the Christ figure, and they say, well, is, is he safe? Miss Beaver says, oh, oh no, he's not safe, but he's good. See, when we wake up to the fact that each time we gather here and when we wake up in the morning, we're waking up to the presence of Almighty God. And then when we come to sing, we walk through these doors into the presence of God with our lives. It's dangerous. That last part of Isaiah 6, what does Isaiah say? He says, woe to me. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. See, in Isaiah's vision, he recognized that when his eyes gazed upon the mighty God, the holy, the wondrous, the unmistakable God, he recognized all that he was. Woe to me. I'm a sinful Man, and I live among sinful people. See, Isaiah woke up to the realization that God was God and that his eyes had just fallen upon it. See, worship is dangerous. Waking up to God is dangerous because God will call us to some radical, unconventional things. God will call us to things that are difficult to swallow and hard to do and even hard to live with. But God is good. And when we wake up to the realization of who God is and who we're not, it's unbelievably troubling. Because all of my sin becomes exposed. Book of John tells us all about it, that in the light, there can be no darkness. So when we wake up to the presence of God, every dark area of my life is radically exposed. And I hate that. So I like to contain my God in worship in this small little place so I don't have to come to the full, real, full realization of what it means to be me in his presence. It's dangerous. It's also dangerous <clears throat> to wake up to God's purposes in the world. Because when we really do that, it changes everything. Church no longer becomes something we can attend and then leave. Worship no longer becomes something I get to pass judgment on and, and hop from place to place to place until I find a band where the singer's voice doesn't annoy me. Or where they sing songs that I like. Because we recognize that, that worship is more than that. But that worship will cost me. It will cost me not only my life, but how I live. It means that, that worship 
changes everything. It means that Jesus' words in Matthew 25 where he's talking to the disciples and, and the religious leaders and he says, you, when you feed those that are hungry, when you clothe those that are naked, you're doing it to me. That changes everything. And it's dangerous because once you start walking down that road, everything looks different. And even the, the believers in your life the church, the church people will look at you like, what are you doing? You are crazy. Why do you care so much about that person? They're a drug addict. They're homeless. They could just get a job. Why do you keep putting yourself out there for your neighbor who just keeps taking advantage of you over and over and over again? Because the world won't get it. Because there is no answer, except that I recognize that my worship causes me to live differently, to seek justice, to fight for the oppressed, for the orphan, for the widow, to see the world through the eyes of Jesus. So when we say as a community that we're worship-driven, we don't mean that we want to be really great at singing in here. We don't mean that we hope the band doesn't miss any notes or that Tony gets all the words up there. We don't mean any of that. We just mean that we want to be alive to who God is. And that we want to live lives that daily reflect a worship that says we want to be about your purposes in the world. And that means that sometimes we're in a gathering here and it's going to be a mess. And sometimes it's going to be fantastic. But this place is not our worship. It's just where we gather to corporately put our hearts before Almighty Holy God and say in all of our messed up lives, in all of our messed up ways, with all of our sinful stuff, here we are, broken and empty, but God, we need you. So that person that's singing next to you with everything they have, totally off key and probably the wrong song, so be it. So be it. True worship begins here and continues out those doors. So what it means to be worship-driven. So as we close our time together this morning and we go to sing this song, I want you to imagine and, and maybe even visualize yourself before Almighty God, before the presence of holy, mighty, wondrous God. And let's sing as if we were face-to-face with Him. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful that you allow us into your presence. We're grateful, God, that you call us into your presence. We're grateful, God, that you open the doors for us to be able to see you and that you become accessible to us through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that our worship wouldn't be hollow and passionless and powerless that our worship would be a recognition that we are standing face to face with almighty, holy, wondrous God and that you call us to wake up to the fact that you are more than about just this act but that our very lives can be echoes of worship. This morning as we continue in worship, if you have a prayer need, we invite you to come down with a man and visit with a man or woman on our prayer team that will be down here on the corners that will be open to praying with you and laying their hands on you or just hearing your needs and concerns. 
Likewise, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never surrendered your heart to the King of Kings, then come down this morning and visit with our prayer team and, and let us talk to you about the God that has changed us and redeemed our hearts.